Welcome, I'm Sirius Afshar, and this is the Wigos Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection. In this podcast, we will discuss some of the most pressing issues related to the linkages between the informal economy and social protection, including debates around workers' health provision, pension schemes for older workers, as well as childcare systems and other social protection policies for informal workers in order to improve their livelihoods. And in this episode, in 2021, Wigo has launched the project Challenging the Global Orthodoxies, which undermine social protection. In a nutshell, the project aimed to examine some of the dominant ideas in the field of social protections that were hindering the concrete inclusion of informal workers in these schemes. Exactly one year ago, I invited the coordinator of this project, Florian Jürgens Grant, to talk here in our podcast about what this project was about and its research perspectives for that year. You can check our conversation on episode 26 of our podcast. Now that the project has been finalized, I invited Florian again to discuss the main findings, to unpack how these dominance ideas operate and to bring some cases where alternatives have emerged to challenge the premises of these ideas. And now, let's hear our talk with Florian Jürgens Grant. Florian Jürgens Grant, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for having me, Cyrus. It's always a pleasure. Right. So before we dive in, let's step back for a moment. Can you tell us how the project came about? Why did we go decide to challenge dominant ideas about informality and social protection for informal workers? Right. So universal social protection appears to have everybody's full support, right? From governments to the UN, civil society, even the IMF and World Bank. Everybody's on board and talks about universal social protection. Yet, you know, despite this apparent consensus, we're still just so far away from achieving universal coverage, uh, particularly for informal workers. So the question we asked ourselves about two years ago was, well, why is that? Why are we, despite everybody appearing to being on the same page, pulling in the same direction, making such slow progress in extending social protection to informal workers? And so the project was really based on this idea that while there may be in a consensus, and I think there is, that social protection is generally important and we should have more of it and it's a good thing, including for informal workers, there's actually quite a lot of disagreement still beneath the surface of this consensus of disagreement. Uh, on how those programs and systems should actually look like, who should access them, on what terms, and importantly, who should pay for them, and how should they be paid for. So there's still quite a lot of disagreement when it comes to the the actual reality or realizing this ambition that is, I think, shared by most people. And some of those agreements relate to just different policy preferences that may be legitimate or, or knowledge gaps that we need to fill. But others are, from our perspective, straightforward barriers that we do need to overcome if we want to ensure that uh, all workers, informal, formal, can access social protection on fair and equitable terms. And you know they affect the realization of universal social protection in general. They really come to a head in efforts to expand social protection to informal workers. And since informal workers represent the majority of those currently excluded from social protection, we really do as a sector, not just as we go, need to overcome these challenges and these barriers in order for everybody to have social protection. And that includes informal workers. You know, if we don't figure out a way to overcome them and to make significant progress in expanding coverage to informal workers, 
then we're just not going to achieve universal social protection simply by the vast number of uh, informal workers. The second premise of our work was that some of these orthodoxies, as we call them, these kind of narratives, these beliefs around social protection, generally originate at the global level, and particularly from quite powerful international financial institutions, such as the, the World Bank and IMF, you know, given their resources, their reach, and their institutional power, they have a significant impact on social protection informality, how, how those terms are understood around the world, what evidence is generated, what evidence is emphasized, and consequently, what policies are considered and implemented. But, you know, they really do have real-world impacts, these claims that we hear. So, for instance, this is one idea that social protection drives or creates informality. And speaking to someone at the Inter-American Social Security Conference about this a couple of months ago, and he told us, and this is a quote, today when someone presents a proposal to create some new social protection benefit, one of the first objections raised is whether it would not create more informality. So these ideas that can sound quite technical, abstract, and academic, they trickle down to policymakers at the national level and can present important barriers to the expansion of coverage. So that's why we felt we have an opportunity to develop some evidence to respond to those narratives that we perceive to be unhelpful. So one of these key orthodoxies that you mentioned is the thesis of the perverse incentives, an idea initially developed by Santiago Levy to explain informality in Mexico, which now is promoted by international financial organizations as a key explanation for informality. You have looked into this claim. Can you briefly explain the argument and what have you learned about it? over the last year and a half. Yeah, so this is one of those those ideas that we've encountered, right? The idea that social protection can cause substantial increases in informality. And as I highlighted by the, the quote earlier, this can present a particular challenge for governments wanting to expand social protection to informal workers, but being maybe nervous about social protection potentially increasing informality. So this is an important claim that we need to engage with. And just a little bit more specifically, it says that it's the combination of employment-linked social insurance with um, tax finance, social assistance for low-income workers. So, you know, it's it's the combination of those two ways of financing social protection that it is claimed is a key driver of informality. And the reason is that social security contributions makes formal employment more expensive by adding to labor costs. So it makes it more expensive compared to informal employment where these taxes and labor and contributions are not added, right? So it makes it relatively more expensive and this difference in labor costs provides a sufficiently effective incentive for employers, it is claimed, to evade labor laws, social protection laws, and essentially demand more informal employment. The thesis or the claim is also assumed to exist from workers' perspective. So with the introduction of non-contributory, so tax-financed, uh, social assistance benefits, you know, which workers can now access, even though they're not formally employed, the claim is that they are now more willing to uh, work informally because they can still access social assistance benefits, and particularly healthcare. So it makes informal work more appealing because it still provides some social protection benefits without having to pay social security contributions for it. So this is essentially the argument. It has recently popped up again, particularly in um, uh, the UNDP's Regional Human Development Report for Latin America in 2021, but also in the IMF's recent report on the global informal workforce, where they're quite clear around saying, so there's a quote here from UNDP, social protection policies contribute to informality because they tax formality and subsidize informality. The IMF here says that payroll taxation of formal sector workers increased the cost of doing business, 
and create double taxation of labor, thus encouraging informality. So, you know, they're very clear about social protection being a key driver of informality. And it takes quite a central place in some of those recent publications from those institutions. So we have a range of issues with these claims, right? So some are empirical, but we also have theoretical principled you know, disagreements with what's being claimed. On the empirical side, so let's start with that. We've been fortunate enough over the last year and a half with support from CEDA to generate some new evidence really looking into this claim. Does social protection really drive informality? And the evidence is not nearly as clear as IFIs make it out to be. So for instance, we've reevaluated the case of Mexico's universal health coverage program, Secure Popular, which is kind of a centerpiece in the argument that social protection to informal workers reduces, in this case, formal employment. While most studies on Secure Popular find that there's no such impact, there are some, and particularly one study that came out in 2014, that does find that Secure Popular reduces formal employment. And, you know, and this become really central to claims being made that social protection reduces informality. So what we've done is we've re-looked at this study with much more data and improved statistical methods. And we find essentially by reanalyzing this case that providing healthcare to millions of Mexicans outside the formal social security system did not reduce formal employment. So with more data and with improved methods, we find that this high profile case of secure popular really doesn't show that social protection drives informality. And that's in line, as I said, with most of the findings on Mexico's social protection system. But beyond this like very high profile case, the wider evidence base is very mixed and very quite inconclusive. So we've done a literature review looking at all the studies we can find that deal with the labor market impacts of social protection programs. So impacts on formal employment, on informal employment. We've found about 27 studies then I think 11 of those have like credible causal methodologies. And, you know, looking at those in in a lot of detail, we find that some find evidence that social protection program increases informality or reduces informality, but many others don't, right? So it's a very mixed evidence base. And the papers that do find some impacts, they tend to find them for population subgroups. So not at the the total economy-wide level. What they sometimes find that particularly subgroups such as older people, parents of young children, economically disadvantaged groups, there might be changes to their labor supply and their formal or informal work. So some studies find these evidence Many others don't. Generally, they are not average countrywide effects, but only for subgroups. And I think as importantly, where they find effects, they tend to be relatively small. Those are not massive effect sizes. So we're talking about small percentage points. So the findings, they really need to be put in perspective of the these large economies and, and also the positive benefits of social protection. So maybe sometimes for some subgroups, we find a percentage point reduction of formal employment. But, you know, 20 million Mexicans now have healthcare, right? So that's that needs to be put in perspective there. And also not surprisingly, given our re-evaluation of Mexico's healthcare program, methodology definitions and data are hugely influential in determining findings so what how you define informality what data sets you use all of that really drives findings which isn't surprising but i think is important to remind ourselves particularly given how small these effect sizes are but anyway so this this is the the, the empirics we find the evidence base to be 
mixed and relatively weak or not as strong as it is made out to be in some of those global reports. But we also have issues that are kind of theoretical or principled in, in nature. So these claims really rely entirely on a voluntarist view of informality, that people voluntarily choose the nature of informal employment. You know, they wake up in the morning and decide how and where they're going to work without there being any meaningful structural, economic, regulatory or other constraints to their ability to, to find and pursue employment, right? And while that's maybe true for some relatively maybe privileged informal workers or, you know, slightly better off, that's not the case for, for the vast majority who don't have that kind of choice. And framing it around choice might also deflect attention away from the need to reduce barriers to decent work, because for many people, it isn't isn't a choice. Another point is that we were talking about universal social protection here, right? So that's that's the ultimate goal. And in order to meet all objectives of social protection systems, and for those systems to become universal, we will need mixed systems, we will need different forms of financing, right? And the various social protection objectives could be are to smooth consumption over the life life course, so you have a stable income throughout your life life cycle, provide insurance against risks, protect you against poverty, but also to redistribute between richer and poorer. These are all objectives of social protection systems, and different financing strategies are needed to effectively meet those different objectives. Right. Um, so for some, we need a link to to individual income if you want to maintain a stable income over your life, you need some kind of link to to income or employment. But for other objectives to stop people from falling into poverty, to redistribute, to maybe to provide insurance, we need to finance that to some extent through collective mechanism, can be taxes or, you know, redistribution within social security systems. So there's always going to be a mix of financing methods that's important. And that's particularly important for informal workers who often have low or sometimes have low contributory capacities, right? So they can sometimes not be expected to finance the whole social social security contributions themselves, but might need subsidies or maybe tax finance schemes are particularly important for informal workers. So because of all of that, genuine universal social protection will always be a mixed system. And because it is a mixed system, it will always be subject to the claim that the system will increase informality. That's why it's important, I think, for us to to push back against the idea that these mixed systems incentivize informality because all universal social protection will be a mixed system in one way or another. Thank you, Florian. So generally speaking, social protection is financed by social security contributions and general taxes. As we have heard, some claim that due to high rates of informality, we can no longer rely as much on contributions and therefore need to increase taxes on the informal economy. How does this relate to your research? The claim that we we hear, and I think particularly from the World Bank, is that contributory social security linked to employment, as has emerged after World War II, mainly in Europe, and then been transplanted around the world, this way of organizing social security is essentially on its way out. It's on its deathbed, or at least it's becoming less and less relevant. And as I was talking about earlier, sometimes we also hear that it might actually be counterproductive to the goal of expanding more formal employment, social protection for formal workers, because it is perceived to be creating these incentives to informality, right? So we hear that not only is it no longer fit for purpose, or maybe has never been fit for purpose in in some places that are highly informal, but it also might be counterproductive. But the the other side to it is that it is generally understood that social security 
requires or works best where there's kind of stable and formal employment, which you know, is argued with some merit that this is becoming less and less a reality in most contexts, right? So in high-income countries, the casualization of gig economy is kind of threatening that. In low-middle-income countries, the rigidity of social security system or the perceived rigidity uh, does just doesn't mesh well with the high levels of informality, right? The fluctuations of income that often come with informality is perceived to not be a good basis for contributory employment-linked social protection. And World Bank is very clear about this. In their World Development Report, they say, uh, contributory approaches are not a good fit for developing countries. A formal and stable employment is not common. They're not beating around the bush. The answer then from the World Bank is to move essentially from a system of mixing contributions and taxes to one that is mainly financed through general taxes, uh, particularly consumption taxes, coupled with voluntary individual savings accounts, right? You know, we do the basic protection through taxes, and then you, you're a little bit on your own, and there's kind of individual solutions for you to save a little bit. I think what's interesting about this debate is how abstract it is. You have the people claiming that social protection systems just cannot be adapted to a more complex world of work and to informality. And you have others saying, yes, that they, they can be adapted. So with this project and with the uh, fantastic support from CETA, we've been able to look into the evidence a little bit. You know, what do we actually know about the ability of social security systems to be adapted? adapted or to particularly informal employment. So there's a couple of things we've learned. For first of all, social security systems continue to be a huge part of the global financing mix of social protection, right? So the the death of social security has been greatly exaggerated. They're not on their way out. They still make up globally 20% of global taxation, even in low middle income countries where they play a lesser role compared to high income countries. They still make up a big chunk of tax income. And over the last 20 years, where we're supposed to have seen a massive decline of social security, it's remained a stable source of financing, and it's actually grown a little bit since the uh, global financial crisis of 2008, right? So people who present social security as mortally wounded, that's just not what we're seeing in the data. We're also not seeing that there is an obvious relationship between contribution rates and formal employment, right? So if social security contributions, because of their cost, create disincentives for formal work or formalization, you know, then lower contribution rates should lead to higher formal employment, right? Or there should be at least some relationship. But we've done some econometric analysis, and there's just no correlation between contribution rates and informality. So the rates of that people have to pay as part of their contribution does not correlate with the prevalence of formal or informal employment in a, in a given context. So while there may be a relationship, it's certainly not an obvious one. And they, I think we would probably say that there's other more important structural factors about an economy that determines the degree of formal or informal employment and you know, purely looking at contribution rates or that just isn't, isn't it. Efforts to increase formal employment by cutting social security rates. So this would be the logical solution, right? You know, if you think that high social security rates are standing in the way of formal employment, then you would reduce those contribution rates and you would expect there to be, be more formal employment, right? So we've looked at the global literature on this and generally find that that's just not the case. And cutting social security rates are just not a very effective way of generating formal employment. It's a relatively mixed evidence base, but by and large, these efforts by governments to cut social security rates to generate formal employment haven't resulted in significant employment or formalization gains. But they've been very expensive because you forego a lot of income by reducing contribution rates. 
So the fiscal cost of diminished contribution rates can be quite expensive. And I think that's important to keep in mind. So just to come back to where I was kind of starting, that the answer then often is of those who say that social security contributions are no longer the way to finance social protection, that their argument is then we need to do more through taxes, particularly consumption taxes, taxing the informal economy. But some research we've done in Accra and Ghana shows that informal workers actually pay quite some taxes already. So they do pay a range of taxes, of permits, of levies and fees, and particularly for informal, so for poorer informal workers, that the ratio of taxes to earnings can be higher sometimes than for formal workers and can be quite regressive overall, right? So it's not obvious that there is a huge ability to pay taxes in the informal economy. And the taxes that are often paid aren't really recognized in these conversations. So just adding additional taxes on informal workers is likely going to reduce their income and their livelihoods to a point where it's becoming dangerous. It, it is often presented in these conversations that because of informality and because of the absence of clear employment relationships, it is simply no longer possible for employers to contribute to the social protection of informal workers, right? So that's the basis of these arguments. We're like, we would like to get employers to contribute, but there just aren't any. We don't know where they are. We can't identify them. So I'm sorry, workers just have to pay for it themselves. But there's some really interesting case studies that we've been documenting in, in Argentina and in India where informal workers' organizations are actually leveraging the various economic relationships that they have with municipalities, with the private sector, with residents in cities that they work in to actually gain that kind of co-financing that an employer would provide. So these contributions don't technically come from an employer, but they come from those that benefit from the labor of informal workers, which is also the principle behind India's informal sector welfare boards, which have been around for many decades. And based on the principle that those who benefit from the labor of informal workers, whether they're technically their employers or not, should contribute to the social protection. So the very fact that employment relationships aren't obvious or maybe aren't even employment relationships doesn't mean that we can't think creatively about how should those who benefit from the work that is being done by informal workers how can they contribute to the social protection of, of informal workers? Informal workers, just most of them cannot finance social protection on their own, certainly not at the level that is required and the adequacy of benefits that is needed, right? So somehow we need additional financing. I think the good news about the resilience and even maybe growth of public social security systems is they, they provide the tools to do that. So you can redistribute within those systems, you can provide care credits for people undertaking care work, and you can find ways to make them affordable and adequate. But we do need to look beyond or not just focus on direct employment relationships. And I think these these experiences from India and Argentina are really insightful in that sense that it's ultimately about labor and who benefits from the labor of workers and those who benefit should contribute a fair share to the financing of workers in their value chain. So moving on, another claim we sometimes hear is that public social insurance systems are not fit for purpose in a world of work that is highly informal and where self-employment makes up a big part of employment. You have looked at global experiences, as you've mentioned, on including self-employed workers into social insurance systems. What have you learned there? Um, in these global spaces, we do hear increasingly often that social security schemes just simply cannot be adapted, right, and made more inclusive to informal workers. And most of those 
in low and middle income countries are self-employed. So you get these quite abstract claims. But then around the world, governments haven't given up on social security and they're actively working on different ways to make them more inclusive or informal and self-employed workers. So there's interesting work going on around the world, which is a finding in of itself that despite all this noise around the death of social security, you know, governments are still trying their best and some with quite a lot of success. And I think we can learn a lot from these efforts to make schemes more inclusive. So for instance, in, in Costa Rica, between 2005 and nine, registration increased from 16 to 45%. Brazil has a kind of a monotax type, simplified tax social security scheme that's seen substantive increases in a number of years from 2009 to 15, from about 30 to 40 degrees. You know, so there are big increases in coverage. I think that should be noted. So this doom and gloom that because of informality, we have to give up on social security, I think is not warranted. But beyond that, it seems to be key that there is legislation that underpins those efforts to expand coverage. So that seems important for good governance and for the ability of workers to claim their rights. We also often see that majority of countries where we've looked at this, they seem to mandate at least one benefit. Oftentimes it's pensions. Whereas the big debate, I think, between mandatory and voluntary schemes, voluntary schemes really place a premium on full factor subsidies, tailored benefits, information campaigns. But on the other hand, governments don't have to invest enforcement. But I think experience with voluntary schemes maybe have not lived up to expectations, sometimes struggle to reach the sufficient numbers. And maybe, although we don't have enough data on this, mandatory schemes might be more successful that. But you know, on the whole, I think we believe that it's the nature of benefits the affordability, all of these things might be more important in the end. But I think that's maybe an open question on the effectiveness of voluntary schemes vis-a-vis mandatory ones and and making things mandatory without enforcing or without ensuring affordability, you know, is maybe not particularly effective. We do see quite a number of those monotax schemes, those simplified unified tax and social security regimes. They seem to have quite a high degree of success in addressing affordability and access challenges. So they make it relatively easy and relatively affordable for often small and micro entrepreneurs to start contributing to social security schemes. So I think there's a lot we can learn from those. And lowering administrative barriers is done in a couple of countries with uh, single window approaches or one-stop shops where informal workers can go and sign up in a relatively uncomplicated manner. But I think one of the key questions is how to make it appealing to informal workers. And sometimes there's a sense that, you know, pensions are very far in the future and maybe aren't quite as relevant to the immediate needs that workers face in the here and now, with it often quite pressing. So governments, what they tend to do is mix long and short-term benefits. So have long-term old age benefit, and you combine that with something that's quite helpful in the here and now, such as health insurance or maternity benefits or child benefits. So that's, I think it's a quite common and quite useful strategy. And obviously the issue of financing is hugely important. Without an employer, self-employed workers have to finance the entire burden themselves. And that's just oftentimes not possible. That's just too much. So we do see that in places where there's been substantive increases in coverage, governments have addressed the affordability issue in one way or another. And I think that's essential. So this could be subsidies or co-contributions. Uh, but, you know, in one way or another, affordability needs to be addressed for self-employed workers. I mean, finally, we do see that the active participation of membership-based organizations of informal workers is, is absolutely key in expanding coverage. They help spread awareness, facilitate enrollment, sometimes even the payment of contributions, collective agreements. So their role in this is essential in achieving coverage. So I think what we've learned from this study is that high-quality social security can be expanded to self-employed workers. We've seen it, and oftentimes, 
times I think governments are actively exploring solutions with quite some success. Um, so I think that's something that deserves more recognition and international support. Absolutely. So to wrap up, the project has now finished, but dominant ideas are still very much out there undermining the extension of social protection for informal workers. What are Wigo's future plans to follow up on the paths opened by these projects? Uh, yeah, so there's still uh, quite a lot of work to be done. This was the first attempt of us to develop, and we go and, and many partners that we've worked with, to develop a, an evidence base that helps us better understand and challenge these narratives. And I think we've made quite a lot of progress in having something to say in response to those narratives, but much work obviously remains to be done, and, and we will continue this work. So this was just the start for WeGo. You know, we've generated a lot of evidence, and the hope is now that in the coming years, we will take this evidence to workers' organizations and other allies to think collectively how we can use this evidence for advocacy at the national level for high-quality and equitably financed social protection. So we want to translate the research into accessible formats, use it as a basis for learning and capacity development efforts to help to maybe more confidently push back against some of those harmful ideas and have those resources to push back against those ideas. Um, so this is something we really want to focus on in the coming years. But also we want to keep thinking about and hopefully providing helpful guidance on how high quality, fairly financed social insurance can be expanded to informal workers. Social protection that is funded in a fair and equitable manner where the financing burden isn't just loaded on the backs of poor informal workers alone, but where we can tap into the contributions of those who benefit from informal workers' labors. So we want to think about that a little bit more, and we have some work coming up with the ILO where we want to think about a kind of fair financing of social protection in a changing world of work, but also in a world that is highly informal. And really, broadly, think about how social protection can be expanded to informal workers in line with their rights to high-quality schemes that provide adequate protection rather than pushing them into schemes that might help with coverage expansion, but provide much less protection. So where they're essentially on their own and don't have the kind of the solidarity in financing and the solidarity in protection. So I think that's key for us. Excellent. Florian Jürgens Grant, thank you very much. Thanks, Cyrus. It's been a real pleasure. And if you want to learn more about the Challenging the Global Orthodoxies project, read its new publications, watch the webinars and debates about the dominant ideas that shape social protection policies around the globe, we will leave some links in the description of the episode. And don't forget to follow Wigo in our social media channels, Twitter and Facebook to get the most updated publications, events and more. I am Cyrus Afshar and this was the Wigo's Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection. See you next time.